Hey everyone, before we begin this episode, I wanted to let you know that March is Tripod Month. If you listen to other podcasts, you might have heard about this. The podcasting industry as a whole is still pretty small. Most people don't even know what podcasts are. So in March, we're asking that you reach out to friends or family and ask them to try a new podcast. Teach them what podcasts are and how to listen. It doesn't have to be this particular podcast that you share. Just pick your favorite podcast and spread the love. Oh, and if you're on social media, use the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks. Grant Heslov is one of those actors you'd probably recognize if you saw his face, even if you don't recognize his name. If you were glued to the TVs in the 1980s, you might have seen him as he began his acting career with brief appearances on classic TV shows like Joni Loves Chachi, Family Ties, and Happy Days. Or maybe you saw him on The Twilight Zone, Matlock, Baywatch, Dragnet, or Seinfeld. Didn't watch much TV in the 80s or 90s? No problem. Grant started to expand from the small screen to the silver screen in the 1990s when he starred alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger in True Lies or as a gorilla pounding pad in Congo. Or maybe you remember him as the hapless cop on drugs in the Chris Farley and David Spade comedy, Black Sheep. We could go on, but I think you get the point. After going from TV to movies in the 1990s, he started to add another skill set at the turn of the century. This time, from in front of the camera to going behind it. Grant was the producer for a film we've looked at on this show, Argo. In 2005, Grant co-wrote Good Night and Good Luck with Hollywood heartthrob George Clooney. It was a film that the pair of actors turned screenwriters would also star in themselves. In 2009, Grant would direct just his second feature-length film and his first film behind the camera alongside George Clooney. The Men Who Stare at Goats was released in 2009 to some rather mixed reviews. Some people loved the conspiracy-turned-comedy style of the film, others not so much. It's time to dive into the world of top-secret CIA psychological experiments. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. It's time for Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'll share three things. Two of them are true. One of them is a lie. Listen closely for the answers scattered throughout the episode. Sometimes they're easy. Sometimes not so easy. But regardless, at the end of the episode, we'll learn which one is a lie. Okay, here they are. Number one. The real character that Lynn Cassidy was based on was able to kill a goat using nothing but his mind. Number two, none of the main characters in the movie use the real names of the people that they're based on. Number three, the U.S. government funded several projects over the course of two decades that are collectively known as Project Stargate. As you're listening for the answers, if you hear something and wonder how it's spelled, or maybe you just want to grab a written copy of this episode to share with a friend, you can get that at the show's home on the web, 
basedonatruestorypodcast.com. They're on a pay-what-you-want model, which means you pay a dollar, two dollars, a million dollars, or you can just grab it for free if you can't afford it, but you still want the written version. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com. And with that, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of The Men Who Stare at Goats. The movie begins on a close shot of Stephen Lang's character, Brigadier General Dean Hopgood, staring at the wall. There's not much explanation as to why he's staring, but he sure is staring very intently. Then he informs his secretary he'll be going on to the next room and charges the wall. As you might expect, when his head hits the wall, much pain ensues. After this, in the movie, there's some text on screen that says, more of this is true than you would believe. That may be true, although from the onset it's worth pointing out that we don't know exactly how much of this story is true. I've made this blanket disclaimer for a few of the other stories we've covered on this show, but it's just as applicable here. Anytime you're dealing with a story involving governments, military, and especially programs that were, at the time, top secret, there's a lot of room for the unknown. For our story today, we're dealing with all three, the government, military, and top secret experiments. So how do we know any of this at all? Well, the CIA released hundreds of thousands of previously classified documents under Executive Order 12,958 from former President Bill Clinton. Still, despite so many files being declassified, we obviously don't know how many files were lost or still kept secret. With that disclaimer out of the way, the truth is that there was no Brigadier General Dean Hopgood. Instead, Stephen Lang's character in the film is based on a very real person named Major General Albert Stubblebein. From the reports of those who knew the real Major General Stubblebein, Stephen Lang's version of Brigadier General Hopgood in the movie is extremely over-the-top and played for comedic effect. Although, there were reports of Major General Stubblebein trying to walk, not run, through a wall. It didn't work, so he didn't try it again. After this little opening sequence, we're introduced to a few more characters in the film. There's Bob Wilton, who's played by Ewan McGregor, and Gus Lacey, who's played by Stephen Root. According to the movie, it's Gus who convinced Bob to look into a psychic spy initiative he was a part of. Like the name change for Stephen Lang's character, General Hopgood, these characters were also changed. In fact, most of the characters' names in the film were changed. We already learned that Stephen Lang's character, Brigadier General Dean Hopgood, was an over-the-top version of Major General Albert Stubblebine. Ewan McGregor's character, the reporter from Ann Arbor named Bob Wilton, was also made up. Although some have speculated he might be loosely based on the writer of the book that the movie is based on, John Ronson. Then there's George Clooney's character, Lynn Cassidy. In the end credits of the film, the movie says Lynn Cassidy is based on a real person named Sergeant Glenn Wheaton. While that's true, many have also speculated that the character of Lynn Cassidy is also based on a few other people. They were Lynn Buchanan, who was the inspiration for Lynn Cassidy's first name, another remote viewer named John McGonagall, 
as well as some elements from a man named Guy Savelli. Like the movie says during the end credits, Jeff Bridges' character, Bill Jango, is mostly based on a man named Jim Channon. Very loosely based, though. In fact, that's a common theme. Even when characters in the film are based on real people, they're very loosely based. Perhaps the reason for this is because of many of the events that were also loosely based on real events. But then, I guess that's what happens when you're trying to tell a story based on a top-secret military experiment. It's next to impossible to get all of the details exactly as they were, so the blanks must be filled in somehow. Back in the movie, Ewan McGregor's character, Bob Wilton, meets up with George Clooney's character, Lynn Cassidy, while he's on assignment in Iraq in 2003. While Bob had planned on covering the war in Iraq, he comes across a much better story from Lynn. All of this is made up. In fact, most of the storyline is made up for the movie. So while we won't really be able to look at a side-by-side comparison, we can point out some of the things that likely inspired the events that we see in the movie. Let's start with, well, the entire premise of the film. There most certainly was a remote viewing program in the United States Army. Although it wasn't the single secret initiative at Fort Bragg called Project Jedi, like George Clooney's character of Lynn Cassidy claims. In truth, there were a number of projects for both psychic functions and remote viewing experiments, with some of them being based out of Fort Bragg in North Carolina, while there were others based out of Fort Meade in Maryland. That's about 350 miles or 560 kilometers north of Fort Bragg in North Carolina. The name Project Jedi was used by filmmakers as kind of a blanket name, but some of the names for the real experiments sounded just like what we now know of as science fiction. According to some reports, these experiments started at the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI, in Menlo Park, California, in 1971. While there's been a lot of debate about why these experiments began, one of the more popular theories is the one that's explained in the movie, that the U.S. government believed the Soviet Union was spending money on such experiments. With the Cold War tensions growing, if the U.S. government thought the Soviet Union was pouring money into this, the U.S. government should do the same. Or, that's the theory at least. Later, in 1972, the CIA offered a contract to the men at the SRI. By this point, the SRI team had grown slightly to include Ingo Swan, who started the experiments the year before, along with Harold Putoff and Russell Targ. Others would join in later, but those three were the primary people from the early days. About this time is when the SRI began looking into psychics, such as the now international celebrity psychic Uri Geller. Many critics have claimed Uri was a fraud, but that's not really the point of our discussion. For the purposes of our story, enough people believed Uri was the real deal to raise the eyebrow of the Department of Defense. When they asked for a professional opinion on the validity of the research, they turned to someone who thought Uri Geller was a fraud. That would be a professor at the University of Oregon named Ray Hyman. As a result, the men at the SRI lost their government funding in 1975. In 1977, the researchers at SRI, Russell Targ and Harold Putoff, published a book called Mind Reach, Scientists Look at Psychic Abilities. I'll add a link to it in the show notes in case you want to check it out for yourself. 
Was the book enough to spark new interest in the idea of remote viewing? We don't know. But we do know that the government wasn't done with the idea. In 1977, the same year that the book was released, a new group was formed inside the army to look specifically into the applications of remote viewing for the military. This was the first official military program, and it was codenamed Gondola Wish. Why Gondola Wish? We may never know the true reason, but as best as we can tell, the name came about in a way that many experimental projects do, by simply combining two random words. The Gondola Wish project focused mostly on two men named F. Holmes Atwater and Murray Watt. As is often the case in the military, both men had nicknames. Murray's nickname was Scotty, and F. Holmes's nickname was Skip. If you remember, in the movie, George Clooney introduces himself to Ewan McGregor's character as Skip at first. That name was a reference to F. Holmes Atwater, who was one of the first men in the Army's remote viewing program. Gondola Wish lasted for a couple years, from 1977 to 1979. Then, more men were recruited and brought into a newly named project called Grill Flame. (laughs) Both F. Holmes and Murray were in Grill Flame along with eight other men, one of those being Joseph McGonagall. If you remember, parts of George Clooney's character are based on Joseph. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another member of the Grill Flame Project was a man named Mel Riley. In the movie, when George Clooney and Ewan McGregor's characters meet, Lynn Cassidy makes a passing mention of a remote viewer named Mel Landau. There is no Mel Landau, but this Mel is most likely a nod to the real person, Mel Riley. Grill Flame lasted from 1979 to 1983. Then there was Center Lane, which lasted from 1983 to 1985. After Grill Flame, Mel Riley left the project, as did Murray Watt. But F. Holmes, Skip, stayed on, as did Joseph McGonagall. There were some new men brought onto the project, too. One of these was Lynn Buchanan, who joined the project in 1984. Then came another two random words, Dragoon Absorb, 
the code name for the experiments between 1985 and 1986. Both Lynn and F. Holmes were still a part of the experiments at this point. Since the fictional Lynn Cassidy says he's part of a secret project in the 1980s to create super soldiers, he's most likely referring to the project that came after Dragoon Absorb. In 1986, the Dragoon Absorb project ended and was folded into a new project called Sunstreak. While we've already learned with all of these different projects and their names, this was not the first time a project was renamed due to a personnel change or some other change in the project. This time, it was both a personnel change and a change in the project's goal. At some point in 1985, the government decided to split the remote viewing experiments something that happened in 1986 when Sunstreak started. Project Sunstreak was purely military, while remote viewing strictly for scientific research was carried on separately. To give you an idea of how much the government weighed into the military applications of remote viewing compared to the scientific research, there were 14 men involved in Project Sunstreak. This included Lynn Buchanan, F. Holmes, or Skip Atwater, and coming back for a second tour, the only person to do so, Mel Riley. Meanwhile, there were only two men devoted to the scientific side, Gary Langford and Joseph McGonigal. It's pretty obvious that with 14 men on the military side and two men on the scientific side, the government's priorities were heavily on the military side. Oh, and when I say that there's 14 men in one program and two men on the scientific side, that doesn't mean that there those were the only people involved. That just means that the number of people that were assigned to the program, or for lack of a better way of putting it, those were the ones that were being experimented on. No doubt there were countless doctors, scientists, and other people that were involved in the research, though. With all of these project names, it can get a little confusing. So what of the name Lynn Cassidy mentions in the movie, Project Jedi? According to the real Glenn Wheaton, there was a Project Jedi, it wasn't the overall name of various remote viewing experiments like Gondola Wish or Sunstreak, but rather it was the name of a project within those projects. Glenn recalled many years later that Project Jedi was specifically to study what the Army referred to as paranormal powers. This project started after Glenn witnessed something we see in the movie, a goat dying just by someone staring at it. In the movie, it's George Clooney's character of Lynn Cassidy who stares at a goat so intensely that the goat perishes. According to the real Glenn Wheaton, though, he wasn't the one who killed the goat with his mind. But he was there to witness it. Glenn recalled the event as happening on a typical day of training like any other. After their morning ritual of jogging about 10 or so miles to start the day, Glenn and the rest of his team, the 5th Special Forces of the Green Berets, went to meet with their trainer, a man named Mike Akanis. In the movie, the fictional character based on Mike Akanis is Ben Eckmeyer, who's portrayed in the film by Morse Bicknell. Anyway, Mike was a master at hand-to-hand -hand combat. As part of his training, the Green Berets... It was common for Mike to use an area they affectionately recalled the bear pit. By Glenn's recollection, the bear pit was about 10 feet deep and then about 60 to 80 feet wide and, and then filled with sand so that they could practice their hand-to-hand -hand combat. On this particular day, though, Mike Akanis wasn't alone in the pit when Glenn and the rest of the Green Berets showed up for training. Along with Mike in the pit was a goat. Like the movie shows, the U.S. Army's use of goats for training purposes 
was very true. They'd use them to help train soldiers to do everything from fixing wounds to how to kill and prepare the meat. Anyway, according to Glenn, it was Mike who stared at the goat. Without touching the animal, he focused on the goat so intently that after a few moments, it started to bleat and cry. But Mike didn't let up. He kept staring. Then the goat dropped to its knees and they could see blood coming out of its nose. Then only a few seconds later, the goat's mouth began to froth, something Glenn referred to as red suds. Finally, the goat fell and died. After this event, Glenn said the military decided to look into whether or not this was a one-time thing. Could Mike Akanis really kill animals with his mind? If he could do it, could anyone do it? That was the basis for Project Jedi. Just to put this into a bit of perspective here, Project Jedi was the name of a top secret project inside of a top secret project. And there were very few people involved in this projectception. So hopefully I don't have to say that we need to take all of this with a grain of salt. But then again, we know for sure that the government was involved in psychic remote viewing experiments for military applications. So maybe they had a good reason for spending millions of dollars over the span of decades on those experiments. Although Project Jedi started, as Glenn claimed, after Micah Canis killed the goat with his mind, the timeline in the movie would have been a bit off. Remember earlier when George Clooney's version of Lynn Cassidy says that this happened in the 1980s? Well, sadly, Micah Canis died at the age of 27 on a mission in Nicaragua on September 8th, 1978. However, we know from documentation that he was responsible for developing a hand-to-hand -hand training course for the soldiers at Fort Bragg in December of 1975. And according to Glenn's recollections, the events in the bear pit happened in the dead of winter. So maybe it was in 1975 that this happens instead of the 1980s like the movie claims. We don't know, but it sure is fascinating. Back in the movie, another major character that plays a role in the film is Jeff Daniels' portrayal of Bill Django. We already learned that the character of Bill Django is based very loosely on a man named Jim Channon. The real Jim Channon was interviewed several times by John Ronson, the author of the book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, on which the movie is based. The character in the movie is a very laid-back person with some rather extreme views. That seems to fit with what we know about Jim Channon. While Jim's name didn't come up as a member of Gondola Wish, Grill Flame, Centerland, Dragoon Absorb, or Sunstreak, he was in the U.S. Army for two decades from 1962 to 1982. During this time, and more specifically toward the end of his military career, he began to work on what he referred to as the First Earth Battalion. In 1979, he published an operations manual for the battalion, something he claims helped him be given the command of the battalion when he presented it to military officers. Is this true? We don't really know. All we have is Jim's word, and it probably doesn't help that he's fluctuated his side of the story. By this, I mean on separate occasions, Jim claimed high-ranking officers in the U.S. military gave him command of the 1st Earth Battalion in Kentucky in 1979 and that it happened in 1983 in Kansas. As far-fetched as his claims may sound, again, it's worth noting that he's not the only one who seems to have found some validity in them. 
When he retired from the U.S. Army, Jim Chanin found work as a consultant to globally respected companies like AT&T and Whirlpool. But he wasn't a typical business consultant. He was something Fortune magazine referred to as the business world's first corporate shaman. Back in the movie, the final plot point occurs when Kevin Spacey's character, Larry Hooper, leaves the Army program in favor of going private. The implied storyline here seems to be that Larry is trying to make a buck off the government by commercializing the experiments. While Larry Hooper is a fictitious character, like the other characters we've learned about so far, he's based on someone who is real. In this case, Larry's storyline in the movie is probably closest to a man named Ed Dames. Ed joined the Center Lane Project in 1984, but only lasted for a few months. As a little side note here, in the movie, Kevin Spacey's character, Larry Hooper, mentions the name of his company as PSIC, or Psychic Systems International Corporation. In 1989, the real Ed Dames would help found a company called SciTech, P-S-I space T-E-C-H. SciTech does exactly what Larry Hooper's company seems to do in the film, commercialize remote viewing. Interestingly, if you go to SciTech's website at SciTech.net, you'll find a testimonial from none other than Major General Albert Stubblebine. According to the site, he used to be the chairman of the board at SciTech. In the movie, things come to an end as both Lynn Cassidy and Bill Jango ride a helicopter off into the sunset, never to be heard from again. Meanwhile, Bob Wilton returns to Michigan to write up his whole story. As with most of the storyline of the film, this is made up, but perhaps just as fascinating is how the real remote viewing projects came to an end. After Ed Dames left the Sunstreak project and started his own commercial company, like the movie implies when we see a bunch of people from the military project joining Kevin Spacey's character's company, Ed had managed to bring some of those from the military program along with him. These included, as we heard earlier, General Albert Stubblebine, along with Colonel John Alexander as board members, Lynn Buchanan and Mel Riley, along with a few other longtime remote viewers named David Morehouse and Paul Smith, were all contracted by Ed's company. With so many leaving the military to start a private practice, the military feared the project details might leak. So, in 1990, the project known as Sunstreak came to an end. Project Sunstreak was followed by a project that would end up being the name synonymous with the entire program. Project Stargate began in 1990 after a man named Dale Graff took over as the head of the project at Fort Meade. Both Lynn Buchanan and Mel Riley were still involved on the military side, while Joseph McGonagall was involved on the purely scientific side. Along with Lynn, Mel, and Joe were Paul Smith, Gabrielle Pettingell, David Morehouse, Ken Bell, and people we only know as Greg S., Angela D., and Robin D. As recently as June 30th, 1995, the Stargate Remote Viewing Program officially moved from the Department of Defense to the CIA, who immediately canceled it. We'd likely never know about any of this if it weren't for one of the men who started it at the Stanford Research Institute, 
1995, the same year the CIA shut down the program, Russell Targ submitted an official Freedom of Information Act to get the documents surrounding the entire Stargate project released. As a result, and as part of a release that included over 420,000 documents, about 12,000 of those documents were from the decades of remote viewing studies done by the military. To this day, there are countless people who have poured over those documents as well as the accounts of the people who were there. Many of those people are still alive. Joseph McGonigal has offered numerous interviews about his experiences after leaving the military, including some with the Men Who Stare at Goats author John Ronson. Although those interviews were for John's documentary called Crazy Rulers of the World. Lynn Buchanan left the remote viewing program in 1992 and founded a company called PSI, which stands for Problems, Solutions, Innovations. It's a company he still runs today, and you can learn more about his company over at crviewer.com. As for Glenn Wheaton, after retiring from the military, he started a nonprofit organization in his home state of Hawaii called the Hawaii Remote Viewers Guild. Through his nonprofit, Glenn offers free advice and consultation for civilians like you and I to improve mental focus. You can learn more about his organization and even grab a PDF copy of the original The Men Who Stare at Goats script that he has hosted on his server over at hrvg.org. As for the rest of the men who were involved in the remote viewing program for the U.S. government, most of them have gone their separate ways. Many have, like Joe, Glenn, and Lynn, continued remote viewing in some form or fashion, though. For example, Guy Civelli has had his stories published in numerous scientific papers as he's made a living as a martial arts teacher focusing on the mental and spiritual side of the martial arts. If you remember, Guy Civelli was one of the men who went into the character of Lynn Cassidy. He's the one who influenced the dim mock. That's the touch of death that George Clooney's character claims to be able to do. That's something Guy Civelli also claims to be able to do. Jim Channon, the man who influenced Jeff Bridges' character of Bill Django, is also still alive. When he was interviewed by John Ronson for his Crazy Rulers of the World documentary, Jim claimed to still be consulting for the military elite, such as the chief of staff of the army at the time. Oh, he also made sure to mention he's still officially the commander of the 1st Earth Battalion. Regardless of where you fall on how real the concept of remote viewing may be, no one can deny that for a period of over two decades, the U.S. military took it seriously enough to dedicate an incredible amount of time, resources, and people to its study. So I can't help but wonder, in 1995, we found out about a top-secret program that the government had funded for over two decades. What other top-secret government projects are happening right now that we won't know about for decades, if ever? It doesn't matter if you believe remote viewing and psychic powers to be true or not. After all, your belief in the experiments doesn't stop one fact from being true. The U.S. government has spent millions of taxpayer dollars on programs like these. Keep that in mind as you file for your taxes next month. Maybe in a couple decades, you and I will finally be able to learn exactly what the taxes we're paying today are going to help fund. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. 
If you want to learn more about the true story behind the men who stare at goats, I'd recommend looking at some of the journalism by John Ronson. Of course, there was the book he wrote, also called The Men Who Stare at Goats, and that's the book that the movie is based on, and it's a great place to start. But there's also the documentary series that John wrote and directed called Crazy Rulers of the World, which includes many interviews from the real people behind the characters shown in The Men Who Stare at Goats. By the way, that's not to be confused with another documentary series by John called The Secret Rulers of the World. In that documentary series, John covers conspiracy theory-esque type topics such as the U.S. government attacks on the Weaver family at Ruby Ridge to the theory that the elite of the world are descended from a race of reptilian lizards. I'll make sure to put a link to all of those in the show notes over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the two truths and a lie game, I wanted to share another review from iTunes, this time from username BRE987578, who, despite the username, keeps it short and simple, saying, quote, fantastic and informative podcast, end quote. Wow, that included three exclamation points. Thanks, Bree987578. Or is that all right if I just call you Bree? Well, whoever you are, Bree, thank you so much for the kind words and thank you for taking the time to rate and review the show. And thank you for taking the time to find and listen to the Based on a True Story podcast. If you want to leave a five-star review for me to read in the future, hop over to iTunes. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the real character that Lynn Cassidy is based on was able to kill a goat using nothing but his mind. Number two, none of the main characters in the movie use the real names of the people they're based on. Number three, the U.S. government funded several projects over the course of two decades that are collectively known as Project Stargate. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number one. As we learned, it wasn't the character Lynn Cassidy is based on, Glenn Wheaton, who killed the goat. It was, according to Glenn, their martial arts teacher, Mike Akanis, who killed the goat with his mind. Do you believe it's possible for someone to have paranormal powers like remote viewing? Or are you just fascinated by the top secret theories and conspiracies that spawn from projects like Stargate? Let me know in the Based on a True Story podcast Facebook group, or you can tweet at me where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or maybe you're not a fan of social media. You can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, have a great week, everybody.